When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works, or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Today, I am chatting with David Page about Food Americana. Two-time Emmy winner David Page changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, he traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things, covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Once back in the States, Page has pursued his passion both personally and professionally. Creating diners, drive-ins, and dives, and hands-on producing its first 11 seasons took him deep into the world of American food. Its vast variations, its history, its evolution, and especially the dedicated cooks and chefs keeping it vibrant. It is those experiences, that education, and the discovery of little-known stories and facts that led Page to dig even deeper and tie the strands together in Food Americana. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, David. How are you today? I'm terrific. How are you? I am terrific as well, and I'm really excited to speak about Food Americana. I can't wait to hear all about how you decided to write it, what your research was like, and just everything. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, why don't we start with you talking a little bit about Food Americana for those that haven't read it yet. Okay, Food Americana was my attempt to define American cuisine. You know, there's French cuisine, which we think we know, there's Italian cuisine, and in reality, those actually are subdivided into regional cuisines. But the point is, there are a number of countries where you can look at them and say, that's their food. And to a great extent, we don't have that in America. We have a bunch of foods we like. 
And as I looked into it, I realized the ones we really like form a cuisine of their own. And it turns out that they are virtually all pieces of other countries or cultures' cuisines that we adopted and, very importantly, modified to our tastes or to the availability of ingredients here. And I'm defining these as as foods that are everyday go-to items everywhere, like Mexican food. That is nationwide. It is an option, and it's something that people think of when they say, hey, let's go out. Uh, sushi, in my mind, is is today an American food. Bagels are an American food. Things like Thai food, as popular as they are in many places, are still not on the national everyday what should we have for lunch list. So I don't include it. I, I don't include Vietnamese. I don't include an incredible cuisine that advocates, writers, and chefs have been trying to get America to fall in love with for some years now, Peruvian food. But any cuisine uh, that has as its signature dish beef heart is probably not going to be something that the average American jumps up and says, hey, let's have that today. Let's all go eat some beef heart. Anticuchos. It's a phenomenal dish. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to have to try that one at some point and get back to you. Okay. (laughs) They also make a ceviche that's different than Mexican ceviche, and it's fabulous. Well, being here in Texas, we do see a lot of Mexican food and Tex-Mex and American-Mexican versus actual Mexico, but we see a fair amount of actual, truly Mexican food as well. And I really like that chapter because you distinguish those different cuisines, and that's something I feel like sometimes when we travel, we have to kind of distinguish when we go elsewhere. Because I think here in Texas, people understand it, but I'm not sure they do everywhere else. Well, look, in much of America, Mexican food is a combination, first of all, of Tex-Mex and Cal-Mex and whatever the owner of the restaurant may prefer to make. But there are vast varieties among Americanized Mexican food, which is, to a great extent, very different than the food you would find today in Mexico. And that's great. Tex-Mex is a cuisine. Mexican-American food is a cuisine. There, There's this kind of snooty uh, argument about authenticity. You know, people telling you, well, that's not authentic. No, it's not authentic to what you'd find in Mexico these days, but it's certainly authentic that uh, to the cuisine that developed on this side of the relocated border after America took half of Mexico away in the Mexican-American War, and suddenly hundreds of thousands of Norteños, the Mexicans who lived in the North and had a unique regional cuisine of their own, suddenly they were were in America, where A, the cuisine developed uh, because if you wanted to uh, sell Mexican food to Anglos, you had to tone it down a little, and B, because ingredients are different here, something as simple as the basic white cheese of Mexico being replaced by yellow cheese, because that's what we had in our stores here. And from that, a Mexican-American cuisine took off on its own and diverged from the food that is generally eaten in Mexico. I mean, obviously, there are dishes in common. There are tortillas in both places. Although even there, you get that that authenticity snootiness from some people who say, 
I won't eat flour tortillas because those are not authentic. Well, yes, they're authentic to the north of Mexico, where wheat was planted by missionaries who had come over with the Spanish invaders. So that's perfectly uh, that's perfectly authentic to use that terrible word. I did think that was interesting that you use that word throughout your book because authentic can mean different things to different people. And as you're saying now, a lot of these cuisines have changed as they've become Americanized. So they're authentic to the Americanized version, maybe not authentic to the original version. Yeah, no, nobody in Poland would recognize an American bagel, and uh, nobody in New York thinks that a lender's bagel uh, sold frozen in a supermarket in Omaha is an authentic bagel, but it's what the bagel has become in America. Well, but the bagel is an interesting one to talk about because I do think there are becoming a lot more of these I don't know, artisanal bagel shops or whatever you want to call them that are producing more authentic bagels, not the ones you buy in the grocery store, but actual independent shops. We've had several open up near me here. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's a renaissance in artisan bagel making these days, but it's an interesting, interesting flow. You started out with New York bagels and a similar product produced in a few other cities where there were enough Jews to have a bakery. Then a guy named Daniel Thompson invented the automatic bagel making machine. Now, he, he had been a junior high shop teacher and a tinkerer, and uh, he, he decided that he was his father had been a baker. His father had been trying to develop such a machine. It was finally the son who perfected it uh, back in the early 60s. And he couldn't find anyone to buy it, or well, at the time he was leasing it, he couldn't find anyone interested in it until he came across three Jewish guys, uh, the Lender brothers, uh, Murray, Marvin, and Sam, who who had taken over their father's bagel bakery in New Haven, one of the first bagel bakeries outside of New York. And these guys were visionaries. These guys were looking for a way to go national with the bagel, and they leased his machine which took an artisan product, a handmade product that, uh, you know, you can only make so many and so fast. Now you can make 4,800 bagels an hour. It was kind of insane. And they mated that with another technological development just coming into its own, which was freezing. So that that's where the frozen new bagel came from. And that, that's the product that America came to understand as a bagel. Now, I spoke with Marvin Lender, who, who's around 80 now, a great guy and a philanthropist. And, and he admitted that the bagel they were selling was, was not anything like the original bagels that their father made. And he said, you know, two reasons. Number one, you can't sell my father's bagel to non-Jews. It's an uncomfortable texture and taste. So you've got to modify the product uh, to be acceptable elsewhere. And also he acknowledged that anything you mass produce is going to be different than anything made by an artisan. So for years, uh, the country has been mostly eating bagels that don't bear any relationship to the original, and, and they're everywhere. I mean, the, the, the number one seller of bagels in the U.S. is now Dunkin' Donuts. But over the last oh, decade, maybe more, there has been an interest in all kinds of artisanal foods, 
and more and more you you see handmade bagels. Uh, in the book, I, I meet a couple who live in Kansas City. He's a New York Jewish guy who moved there for work. She's non-Jewish, grew up in Kansas City. They get married, and he's moaning about the fact that he's in a bagel desert. And she doesn't understand that because they got Brugers or, you know, something like that. She doesn't understand that until the day she uh, goes to New York on a work trip and he goes with her and he takes her to the Upper West Side and they end up spreading out a blanket in the park and enjoying bagels and lox and whitefish. And suddenly the light goes off in her head that this is something special. Fast forward a few years, they open a bagel bakery. He had no idea how to make a bagel. He had like, I don't know, 70 or 80 attempts before he got it right. Anyway, they open a bagel bakery in Kansas City. It's a big success. They now have four outlets selling handmade artisanal bagels as much in the Midwest as you can get. Well, I loved both the lender story and the story you just relayed in your book. And actually, it really made me think about my daughter. She's a freshman up in New York City in college. And every time we would have had, we had bagels here, just like, you know, the ones I buy at the grocery store, she wouldn't like them at all. And recently she texted me a picture of a bagel with cream cheese from up there. She's like, the bagels are much better up here. (laughs) Well, she's right. Yeah, I said, that's exactly right. And so now she's eating bagels like crazy. So I'm going to have to get better bagels when she returns. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You can get like in Denver, I think it's Rosenberg's, they hand make bagels and they smoke their own salmon and sable. There are places now where you can get a bagel that'll make you think you're in New York City. I, on the other hand, live an hour and 40 minutes from New York City, and my daughter lives on the Upper West Side. So any trip to the city includes driving by Barney Greengrass. And I feel very special because Barney Greengrass has my credit card on file, and I just call up the store, and Gary, the owner, answers, and I tell him who it is, and I tell him what I want, and then we... We, we just stop by the, the front of the store with the car still running, and I run in and grab my bag and run out, and then we go to my daughter's apartment and eat bagels, lox, and cream cheese, which is my death row meal, by the way. <laughs> okay, that's funny, and that's funny that you've thought of your death row meal. Well, everyone's got to have one, although I understand in Texas they won't serve them anymore because somebody ordered some insane last meal that was just massive, and the prison system said, well, that's enough of that. Oh, I didn't even know that. I'm going to have to go look that up. Yeah, my plan had always been, if convicted of murder in Texas, I would order that as my death row meal, and knowing that it could not be provided, they couldn't kill me. Oh, that's a good idea. I thought you were going to say, so now you wanted to be on death row in another state. Well, actually, is Kenny and Ziggy's in Houston? They are in Houston. Mm -hmm. You know, Kenny and Ziggy's is so, quote, authentic, I hate that word. They are one of the few places that gets their smoked salmon from the Brooklyn outlet of Acme, the largest supplier of smoked fish in America, they directly serve like Barney Greengrass and Russian Daughters and if uh, maybe Zabars, but they actually ship the best stuff, not just to those places, but to Kenny and Ziggy's in Houston. Most of their smoked salmon actually comes from a plant in North Carolina. Oh, that's so interesting. And I'm happy to know that because we do eat there occasionally. There was one really close to us that closed during COVID. But there's another that's about 15, 20 minutes from me. I had them on diners like a million years ago, and they only had one outlet. Are they now multi-branch? Well, they were multi-branch, at least two branches. And like I said, the one closed during COVID. And I don't know if they have others or not, but you probably did the one that was right by the Galleria. 
I I can't remember, but it has to have been. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it was the original one. But I'll have to look it up. But as far as I know, maybe they're just back to the one. I I always worry, and and this isn't always true, but I always worry when a place opens up additional outlets because I always say to myself, you know, so where's the owner going to be doing quality control? Which is not to suggest that they didn't because they're they're well known for incredibly high standards, but it always scares me just a little. I agree. I always think of Pizzeria Uno in Chicago as the number one example of that because their original is wonderful and then their Pizzeria Due is okay and then the ones that have gone national are terrible. So I just always kind of think it's really nice when they just keep their original cute, really good place and stay there. Yeah, well, you know, that that gets to the heart of the mom and pop restaurant business where you have people on site who really, really care and are working their butts off for a 3% margin, the food's going to be good there. That's true. Well, how did you decide to organize this? How did you decide which foods to include? You must have done a lot of very fun research. Well, yeah, after I was as straight a straight hard news journalist as could be during part of the heyday of, of news gathering, when we had tremendous resources, I, I was a producer at NBC News, which included a long stint internationally, and then at ABC News. And in that role back then, it was important not to make personal judgments beyond the facts. What I found interesting when I decided to write a book was I had more leeway to use my personal feelings in defining the subject matter. So basically, the decision of what went in the book was just me saying, I'm the ultimate arbiter here, and this is what I think is American cuisine. You could argue that I I left out beef and hot dogs, beef because it bores the hell out of me, and, and hot dogs because you don't cook a hot dog, you heat a hot dog. And I just didn't think it fit into this book. But other than that, um, look, I've I've been interested in food for a long time. I've been reading the restaurant trades for a long time. So every day I open my inbox and there's something interesting there. Today's article from, I think, NRN, uh, Nation's Restaurant News, was all about the massive changes in the format of restaurants that have become standardized after COVID, including dedicated pickup lanes for orders that that were sent in by apps. Anyway, I, I basically read and thought and then made a judgment that the foods I've included in the book, pizza, Mexican, barbecue, fried chicken, sushi, bagels, Wings and other appetizers, burgers, Chinese food, lobster rolls, and ice cream were pillars of what Americans eat now and also reflective of the development of pieces of American cuisine, such things as a reduction in or almost end to most regionalism. You know, uh, lobster rolls. Used to be only in Maine. The uh, the joint I feature in the book is, is in uh, Utah. So the bottom line is, it, it was me. I then did the the thing that you have to do before you can begin to search for your own answers or or uncover facts 
is I read a whole lot of books. I, I, I read, well, I bought about 200 books over the course of my research for my book, read all or parts of them, used those as a guide to finding experts, either the authors or people quoted, then started doing something fascinating uh, that we used to call reporting. I would contact people and talk to them on the phone and interview them about the subject area in question. And then I would ask them for suggestions as to who else I should talk to. I also uh, mined what was available on the internet, but I'm extremely dubious about anything I find on the internet. So there was a whole other process there in confirming facts that may have been brought up in articles on the internet. And, you know, it's interesting. You you find fascinating people along the way. Paul Friedman at Yale, who has written a number of books about food, including one on the 10 most important restaurants in American history, he was extremely helpful to me. It was through him that I was able to get in touch with Cecilia Chang, who passed away a little while ago, but was pretty much the most important figure in Chinese food in America. And I, uh, she agreed to be interviewed. I, I was in San Francisco. I went up to her apartment. Uh, she was a hundred years old and she sat and talked with me. Um, it's just, uh, look, I was an investigative reporter at one point and, and for much of my career. And the one thing I didn't want to do here was make the mistake I find in so much of the work about food, which is to repeat unproven myth. You know, to read so much that's been written about food, you would think every food item that was important in the 20th century was first seen at the uh, St. Louis World's Fair. Not true. <laughs> Probably none of them were first seen there, although they were certainly publicized there. That, that kind of blind acceptance of, well, untruths. I wanted to make sure that to the best of my knowledge, uh, to the best of my ability, Everything we said here was accurate, which is why um, in a number of cases, you have to leave the question open, like who did make the first American hamburger? Uh, Louis Lunch in New Haven jumps up and down and claims they did. And then they, they cite, and, and I'm not, not to denigrate them, they're, they're wonderful people and it's a wonderful place. But the fact is, it's become part of their myth that they created the hamburger. There's no real evidence for that. And, and beyond that, they serve it on white bread. Is, is that a hamburger or is it a patty melt? Well, they won't put cheese on it, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, bottom, bottom line, I did not expect that the research would take as long as it did. I, I went to a number. It took two years. I went to a number of places, including uh, the Memphis in May Barbecue Festival. Uh, in many others, I uh, hired local journalists to go report for me and conduct interviews. And uh, at the end of two years, um, we put it all together and there you have it. Was it hard to narrow it down? Like I was excited to see salt and straw in the ice cream section because we were just in California in August and discovered it and ate it several times. But there are so many wonderful ice cream places. So was it hard to choose them as one of the ones you highlighted versus some of the others that you heard about? At some point, you got to go with your gut. And everything I read about salt and straw, I liked. 
I, I knew that, that he had put out a cookbook telling you how to make his ice cream, uh, Tyler Malik, so that he would be open about the subject. And, and frankly, I read about a number of artisanal, I'm kind of coming to hate that word, ice cream places, and his just impressed me the most. Well, it was very good, so I was excited to see it there. What'd you have? Salted caramel and chocolate chip cookie dough, something like that. Yeah, the sense I get is that salted caramel, if you only have one choice there, that that's the way to go. It was really good. And then my daughter loved the chocolate brownie, and you mentioned that. Well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just thought there are so many different outlets, and it would be really hard. But yes, at some point, I guess you just have to pick the ones that sound the best and go from there. It also depends. Like you got to get to a point where you're comfortable in your own mind that the choice you're making represents what you want to represent. I featured El Indio Mexican Restaurant in San Diego. And when a writer out there interviewed me, he didn't say as much, but it was clear to me that he was looking down his nose at that choice because it represents a a microcosm of Mexican-American cuisine. And clearly, he thought I should have picked a place that was, quote, more Mexican. But what I loved about this place is that it is serving the Mexican-American favorites of, of that place for 80 years now. You know, their, their specialty is the taquito. At one point, it was alleged they invented it, but I think even they backed off that. Anyway, they make there's a conundrum there. You know, the guy said to me, well, they don't hand make their tortillas. I said they nixtamalize their corn. They, they start at the very beginning of the process. Then they have this Rube Goldberg-esque conveyor belt machine that fashions the tortillas and, and, and bakes them. And what I love about that is, even though this is not the original, this was first employed by her grandfather, like, I don't know, 60 years ago. There's something about a third generation place choosing to do things its way turning out such classic Mexican-American food that for me said, yeah, I got to do this place. Absolutely. If it's been around that long and as you said, have stayed in the family, there's definitely something to be said for that. Yeah, but there was a snarky headline uh, that accompanied what was otherwise a positive article. El Indio chosen to represent Mexican cuisine. (laughs) You're like, that's not really valid or accurate. Yeah, that's that's well to represent a form of Mexican American cuisine, but that's okay. Just just spell the name right. Exactly, and have the book with the cover, right? That's what you really need is people to see that. <laughs> oh, please, yeah, I gotta have that. Well, how much overlap did you have with diners, drive-ins, and dives at the places you chose? Because you created diners, drive-ins, and dives, correct? I did. So, was there much overlap between the places you talk about in this book and any of the places you highlighted while you were doing that show? Yeah, there there were several places that I first learned about doing diners. Uh, that Mexican restaurant, for example, or um, Louis Miller's Barbecue in Taylor, Texas, and I guess also one of the hamburger joints, uh, the Triple X. Most everything else was was brand new, but I saw I, I was delighted to go back to some people after hell fifteen years and say, "You want to talk to me again?" Because I already knew that at least at one point these places were great. Well, and I'm sure they did want to talk to you because they were featured on a show that everyone was watching. Yeah, you know, one of the the nice things about I did 11 seasons at diners before leaving. 
One of the nice things about diners, he said, reaching over gratuitously to pat his own back, is that after the fact, I I realized that we had saved a number of restaurants from bankruptcy because it's it's tough to to run a a mom and pop joint. There was a a barbecue restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky, for example. When my daughter was in high school, she was a pretty active equestrian, and we used to go to Lexington for her to compete in horse shows. And early on, we we visited this barbecue joint. And when the woman who owned it with her husband realized who I was, it was like I was some kind of a god. It, it you know the table was full of food. She wouldn't take any money. Um, they had almost gone bankrupt. You know, it became so uncomfortable that that I couldn't go there every time we're in Lexington because food on the arm is is awkward. But man, they made some great mutton. And it just has to be a nice feeling to know that you did save some places, you know, places that probably would not have continued if you had not highlighted them. Yeah, it was a good feeling. And, and look, running an independent restaurant is a hard, risky job. You know, everyone thinks we all have a stove, so we think we could run a restaurant, just like everyone has a TV, so they think they can make a TV show. But it's tough. And, and the, uh, the pandemic just killed a lot of independent restaurants. I mean, more than 100,000 restaurants went under, and I don't have the statistics, but I'd bet you, I'd bet you the vast majority of those were independently owned. I'm sure that's right. And I think they've had to bob and weave a lot, which you mentioned a little bit ago. A lot of places didn't do pickup before, and they either had to decide they were going to do pickup or they weren't going to make it. Yeah. Well, when, when you see Daniel Balud offering curbside, you know things are tough. And that things are changing. I mean, that's going to just be the way I think it is going forward. Whether some of these restaurants wanted to do it before or not, they're going to be doing it now. Takeaway, drive-through lanes, increasing use of technology like apps to place orders, that's here to stay. Which is nice for those of us that do like to be able to do those things. Yeah. I worry about all of the people who are making a living waiting tables who won't have a living as restaurants become more impersonal? Yes, I agree that there will be a probably change in careers for some people. Well, they'll, they'll still be wannabe actors, but they'll have to do something else until the big part comes along. Exactly. Like food deliverers, that seems to be a huge job these days. It, it does, which raises a whole question for restaurants. Um, there's been some advice given to independent restaurateurs that it makes more sense to hire your own drivers than to keep giving a big chunk of your profits to Uber Eats or or DoorDash. Uh, I don't know how many of them have followed through on that, but it makes sense to me. It does. And one of my favorite restaurants here in Houston that I order from regularly has done that, but they still charge so much to deliver. And I understand it because I'm a big book pusher and, you know, shop at indie bookstores and all of that. So I know that it's the right thing to do to pay that. But I just think unless you're going to be a little more competitive, it's probably not going to work so well for them. No, it's like, as I said, every element of the financing of an independent restaurant is a potential disaster. So yeah, I think that's right. Well, was there anything that really surprised you in the journey of writing this book? The fact that my ancestors in Europe did not eat lox and bagels. Um, it turns out that lox, which we now use that term generically to include what is mostly smoked salmon, 
that uh, locks became popular after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad allowed salmon to be uh, brought from the Pacific Northwest to the East Coast as salmon up in Canada were kind of drying up. And because there was no refrigeration back then, uh, the only way to get the salmon to the East without it rotting was to immerse it in salt, which cured the salmon, which turned it into lox. I just assumed that it was a smoked fish tradition from Europe, but yes, there was a tradition of smoked fish for Jews in Europe, but not salmon. I thought that was really interesting. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Well, uh, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, Adrian Miller, probably the best, most knowledgeable source on African-Americans and barbecue, has a book out on that subject called Black Smoke, which is absolutely terrific. And and Adrian was very helpful to me in my barbecue chapter. I like I Alone Can Fix It by Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker of the Washington Post. This is one of about 800 volumes out. Uh, dissecting the Trump administration. And I find her, I'm less familiar with him, but I find her to be a real straight reporter who gets it right, as opposed to the sensationalism in, in say, uh, one of Woodward's books. I recently read The Rat Pack by Richard Lertzman, which is about the Rat Pack, but even more interestingly, centers on the lesser known Joey Bishop, who had a very, very interesting life. I'm reading Bottled and Sold by Peter Gleck because that's the definitive book on bottled water, which I will be including in my next book. And finally, I'm just starting Reagan at Reykjavik by Ken Edelman, who who used to be a a State Department negotiator. And I'm reading that because I was at that summit. Uh, I covered that when I was with NBC. So I'm Hoping to find uh, find out some things that were not apparent at the time. So that that that's that's on my night table, uh, my virtual night table, since I use a Kindle. Well, you do read kind of across a wide range of topics. Have to. I mean, I didn't mention I could mention it. I also read what many people would consider to be garbage. I'm I'm in the middle of Red Book by James Patterson, one of those cop thrillers. I, I usually have something like that going too. Thrillers are perfect because they just keep you engaged and entertained regardless of what's going on elsewhere. And, you know, Patterson's a writing machine. He knows how to do it. Well, and he pairs with a lot of people as well. So he really does produce. Yeah, he has a co-author for this one, too. It's it's almost like, you know how Leon Uris used to, used to have that whole army of researchers slash writers who would sort of pre-write the chapters of his big books? And then he would take over and finish them. Yeah, no, I think it's a little bit like that these days. But, you know, he does well and he is wonderful to booksellers. He does these big scholarships every year and definitely pays back. So, yeah, but I sound better talking about Reagan <laughs> at Reykjavik, don't I? Uh, yeah, that sounds like I don't remember Reagan. I don't remember that summit. So, oh, it was, it was incredible. It, it blew us away because for a, a short time there, the two of them were seriously discussing. They had kicked their aides out of the room. They were seriously discussing doing away with all nuclear weapons. And it, it just, it, it didn't happen. It fell apart. But like Reagan's aides were running around terrified. It was, 
a remarkable, remarkable event. And I saw the Northern Lights for the first time. Yeah, that's really high on my list. I'd like to go to Iceland. It's, it, it's a very interesting country. Their duty-free is on the way in, not the way out. And they would sell something called just some killer, like sort of vodka, but not that you'd buy on the way in. And while I was there, I had a bad cold. I, I asked for an aspirin. I was told aspirin in Iceland is by prescription only. Really? Yeah, different place, apparently. It is funny. I know every country, every country does it differently, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just funny sometimes. It's a beautiful place. It's true. I would strongly recommend going. Okay, good. Well, it's definitely high on my list. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really loved reading Food Americana, and I enjoyed talking about it even more. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.